Well, good morning, River City Church. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm a pastor here at River City. Uh, we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians, um, coming to the close here uh, of chapter 10, uh, working through this section of the book where uh, Paul's been speaking to the Corinthians um, about their, their, their liberty as Christians, their uh, rights to do certain things. In particular, the Corinthians had asked this question about uh, eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols, um, being able to go and even eat and kind of be a part of worship in an idol's temple, even though they were Christians. And so we worked through last week, really, uh, the theology of why Paul challenged uh, the fact that they couldn't just go willy-nilly and go have a meal in a temple um, and be a part of an idol worship ceremony. But really, this week, what Paul's going to do is he's going to kind of cut to the heart of the issue of what the Corinthians are asking. And he's going to really instruct their hearts as to what the posture of their minds, what the kind of posturing of their heart should be. Um, I have a friend uh, named Ben. Um, he's actually one of our provisional elders. Uh, because River City Church is a church plant, um, while we are raising up other pastors, elders, those words are synonymous for us here, we have some external um, elders who are helping to guide and steer this church. And, and Ben Luthie is one of those. But uh, in addition to being a provisional elder for River City, he's just a close friend of mine. Uh, but Ben has this unique ability to every once in a while just ask me a question that just kind of like slays me to the core, right? Do you have any friends like this? I remember I was meeting with Ben uh, a month or two ago and just talking through um, an issue in my life and, and, and kind of just, honestly, I was just complaining to him. I <laughs> just like, I, I, I wish I didn't have to deal with this. This doesn't seem fair. I don't understand what other people want from me. Like, I just, I don't, and he was trying to make suggestions of like, well, hey, what if we kind of set up, uh, set up like a, a set of goals here to meet this thing? And I just was pushing back, pushing, pushing back. And, and he just stopped and he goes, hey, what do you think it is in, in your heart that makes you push back against the idea of setting goals and moving forward with this so much? And I was just like, I was like, shut up, you know? Like, don't, let's pay for our lunch and be out of here. You're buying lunch, right? Like, and I just looked at him and I said like, well, I think I'm going to fail. And I don't want to fail. But that question, like just that, that simple question was, was a question that, that cut to the heart of the issue for me. And so even though in, in this passage here, in, in, in section uh, here, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, there's been a, a repetitive nature to what Paul's talking about. I think what's happening is Paul's trying to come at this at a few different angles. He wants to teach them truth, and so in chapter 8, he's trying to teach them some truth. They're pressing back against that truth, and so uh, in the start of chapter 10 last week, we see that he needs to be really clear about the theology of this issue. He's instructing them that, like, no, you, just, you can't take part in these things if you're a believer. These things are contrary to what it means to be a Christian. If you are one with Christ, you can't go to a temple and become one with a demon and worshiping that demon, and, and so he approaches it theologically and really practically and then this week he approaches it uh, pastorally and addresses the issue at hand. So uh, what I want to do is I want to pray one more time and then we're going to jump into God's word. And the reason I want to pray is because it's been a busy week and it's hard for me to focus on the word of God right now to be frank with you. Ever have a week like that? A lot going on, lots of moving pieces and so what I want to do is I want us to stop and I want us to invite God to change our minds and to shape our hearts around these issues. So would you do that with me? God, we're going to open your word, which is how you have chosen to communicate with us. 
God, first and foremost, would you just help us to be grateful for that? Uh, not, not to push against your ability to cut to our heart. God, would you uh, breed in us a love for your word, for your communication with us? And then, God, would you uh, let us let our defenses down so that it can speak into our lives? Um, God, we've all come here with a variety of different things going on, with the fall, getting started, with busy weeks, with, with friendships, with families, busy work schedules. But God, this is the moment where we stop and we ask you to instruct us as a church, as one body, from your word. So, so help us in that, um, God. Help me as I, I attempt to, to speak, to read, to proclaim your word. In your name we pray, amen. All right, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, and we'll start with verse 23. Uh, Paul says this, uh, he quotes them, he says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, now just as in section uh, a couple weeks ago in chapter 6 and 7, where, where Paul is addressing the Corinthians in terms of these issues of, of idol worship pertaining to uh, uh, temple prostitution and kind of these weird sexual immorality things that were going on in the church, just as in that section, he quotes this slogan that was going on in Corinth. That in Corinth, uh, people love to say, uh, all things are lawful. It appears that this slogan had had it even uh, reached into the church that, that if there was an issue of whether or not a believer could do something, uh, the mantra was, well, hey, all things are lawful, right? The law has been done away with in Christ. All things are lawful. We can do whatever we want. And just as in a few chapters ago, Paul presses against that. Though they're saying all things are lawful, he reminds them, hey, but not everything's helpful. Even though everything's lawful, not everything is good for you, Paul says. He presses against that. All things are lawful, and he presses in a different way, saying, but not all things build up. And then he exposes this principle. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of the neighbor. So he repeats this, that even things, all things may be lawful, even though then in Christ all things may be forgiven, that there are still important principles to play in. And then that verse 24 there is where he cuts to the heart. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. What was at the core, the root of the Corinthians' sin? What was at the core of their desire to be able to just do whatever they wanted? Well, it was that they were worried about themselves above all else. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. That really often, like, man, I'm, I'm worried about me. And so the Corinthians' concern wasn't what God wanted. It wasn't what was helpful to their fellow believers. It certainly wasn't what was helpful to those who didn't yet know Jesus, who they were worshiping with and confirming their idol worship and saying, yeah, this is okay. You can even be a Christian and keep worshiping these uh, idols, keep communing with these demons, as Paul refers to it earlier in the chapter. They were worried about themselves. They were seeking their own good not the good of their neighbors. And so what we see is what's really happened in Corinth is a slogan from their community, a slogan from their culture. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. This slogan from their culture has seeped into their church culture, has seeped into their lives as believers, and is now instructing and controlling them. Have you ever noticed how like the world loves a slogan, right? 
We see this on every uh, political cycle, right? Like change you can believe in. Make America great again. The world loves a slogan. There's something about a short phrase that we think, man, I can just, I can pour all of my hope into that thing. Yeah, that's what I'm about. And the question Paul kind of raises here is, is like, where are you getting your life mantras from? Like, what is pitching you on what life is about? Are you, are you taking the mantras of the world around you? Are you taking the mantras of your culture that say uh, that you're the most in thing, that, that you winning or your freedom or your identity is what is the most important thing to culture as a whole? Or are you taking your mantras, your stepping forward, your marching orders, are you taking them from the word of God? Our goal as believers is to let the word of God be the mantras that are written on our heart. This is why in scripture we're instructed time and time again to meditate on the word of God. That the things that are supposed to instruct us, control us, the things that are supposed to shape the way that we see the world around us, the things that are supposed to determine what our values are, are found in this. Not in the slogans of the world. Because the slogans of the world, the wisdom of the world, as Paul has talked about time and time again in this book, the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. The wisdom of the world doesn't point to what is truly good and honorable, what will bring us ultimate joy. The wisdom of the world points back to us. And if unhappy people create slogans to make other people happy, it's a vicious cycle. So Paul continues to instruct in verse 25, and he's going to give them really three points on how to handle this. So he's going to give them three points. How do we, how do we practically handle this issue then? Like I said, some of this will feel a, a little bit repetitive, but, but he's bringing it up again for a reason. Verse 25 says, okay, so eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, Paul returns to the most base level, obvious thing about this question of meat sacrificed to idols. And he says that, yes, it is no big deal if you go into the market and you're buying meat and you don't know where it came from. And maybe it was leftovers from like some sort of idol ceremony. You're just going to eat it in your house. He's saying, yes, that's no big deal. Again, that doesn't matter. Food is just food. Food's for the body. It's all going to pass away in the end, as he says earlier in chapter 8. He says, this is okay, you can do this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The things in this world, the physical things, they are not what determine our spiritual destiny. Idols are not actually real, Paul has instructed them. He says, you can eat all of this. Now, have you noticed this, though, throughout this book, how Paul is so careful time and time again not to just push the Corinthians into a new form of law? Like, wouldn't it have been easier, wouldn't it have been easier for Paul as a teacher, as a pastor, to instead of trying to teach them and instruct them, instead of trying to cut to the heart of the issue and inform what they believe, wouldn't it have just been easier to be like, yep, you can't eat that meat? Wouldn't it just be easier to say, nope, no meat, sacrifice to idols. You know what? You're not going to handle the sex stuff well, just no sex, right? Just that's the law. It would have been, I think, a lot easier for Paul to handle this stuff in this way. But Paul, time and time again, instead wants to push the Corinthians not into law, but into this principle that in Christ, through the gospel, that they have been given freedom from sin. And in that freedom from sin, they are to find a new joy in this new life that is hidden in Christ Jesus. 
at River City Church, we want our freedom in Christ to be a marker of the way that God is shaping your lives. We, we desire that things in your life would change, of course. Do we desire that you would run from your sin? Yes. Uh, do we desire that, that, that in your life there would be a transformation in the way that you read your Bible, in the way that you pray, in the way that you see yourself as a mission, missionary to the community around you? Yes, we want all of those things. But we don't want the, those to come from a new law that we impose on you. We want those to come from the freedom that you've been given in what Jesus has done for you. That when Jesus died on the cross, when he paid for our sin in his death, when he rose from the dead, Scripture uses this illustration over and over again that he broke the chains and he freed you. That before you were a slave to seeking your own good. Before you were a slave to it, all you knew, the thing that enslaved you was seeking out your own good. But the terrible reality of that enslavement is you were enslaved to seeking out your own good, and yet you had an inability to find what was good for you. That is desperation. Desperation is being bound to, enslaved to, this idea that I have to find what's good for me, and yet being blind what would make me actually happy. And so what we want, our goal, is that as you trust in Jesus, as you trust that he has paid for your sin, and so, so God looks at you and he doesn't see your faults. As you believe that, that in Jesus' resurrection, he's given you new life, and so you don't have to live in the same cycle of pleasure-seeking and selfishness. As you believe that you were bound together in Jesus in his ascension. So when Jesus sits with God in heaven, when God looks at Jesus and says, you're my son, my family, no one can remove you from it, that you would see that because you're one with Jesus, if your faith is in him, that you're a part of that same family of God. That you are now a child of God. That no one can take that freedom, that status, that approval from you. And so our goal is not just that we would help you modify your behavior, but instead that the truth of what Jesus has done would change your heart to going from being one who seeks his own good to one who loves his neighbor, from focusing on your own good to focusing on the good of the others around you. And so Paul gives them this encouragement that, that, that in this, they're supposed to have freedom. And, and that freedom is supposed to lead them to changed lives. Now, at verse 27, he continues to instruct them here. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. Now, as we talked about last week, a lot of this issue of meat sacrifice to idols had to do with, with the culture in Corinth and really what you know, the structure for, for eating out was for the Corinthians. That, that most of eating out for the Corinthians, most of uh, social gatherings were gatherings that took place and in some way were related to idol worship. And so the question of can I go worship in the temple and eat, I, and eat food sacrificed to idols and worship a demon, even though that's a ridiculous question to you, that was tied to this idea for them of whether or not they could exist in their culture and have friends that weren't Christians. And so it's really important 
important that Paul instructs them in this way. Because it, just as when he addressed the, the rampant immorality in the earlier chapters, uh, Paul reminds the Corinthians that he's not advocating to them that they pull out of their society. He's encouraging to, them to maintain these friendships. Like, like each of you has a circle around you, and you probably have, have two different, or maybe even three different circles. Like you've got your family, and that kind of exists in one world, um, and then you've got your friends in another world, and then you've kind of got your, 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 your church friends, right? And what Paul is saying here is he is not telling you that the only people in your friend circle, the only people that you should be close to, the only people that you should spend time with are fellow believers. He's saying exactly the opposite. And so he's instructing them that, yes, even though I've given you restrictions on, on where you can go and where you can eat, he says, if you're just in someone's house, someone has invited you over for dinner, you're in a place, you're not in a temple where uh, idol worship is actually happening before you. He's saying, in this, eat the food. Don't ask the question, right? He's saying, eat the food. If you go into this house, if you're given food, and you're like, I'm not sure where this food came from, don't be an idiot, right? Don't be like, hey. That sausage looks great, but is there any chance that sausage was sacrificed to Baal? I just need to know, right? <laughs> Don't be a stinking weirdo, right? Which is a really important Christian principle for you. Don't be weird. There are plenty of things about being a believer that are just going to make you weird without you making an effort on top of it, okay? Like you're going to think differently than your culture. Things are going to be different about you. But Paul says, no, I want you to exist in culture and society. I want you to be having dinner with non-believers. Really, think about this. Paul assumes that this is going to happen. Paul assumes that they will have these relationships. He assumes that they are going to be in tricky situations because of these relationships. I don't know about you, but that's kind of different than the Christianity that I get pictured of sometimes, right? Kind of different even than the Christianity that if you grew up in the church, maybe you got pushed into. That maybe in, in fear... You were instructed, hey, make sure you only hang out with a good crowd. And really what that meant was make sure your only friends are your church friends. Maybe you grew up and it was like, man, there, there are certain places uh, I'm not supposed to go because of the type of people that might be there. Maybe you can think that now. Now, Paul is being very clear about whether or not they should go to places that even being in that place would cause them to sin. And so are there places you can't go? Like you're not, you're not going to be the missionary to the strip club, okay? That's not how this works. There are places you're not going to be able to go because just being there, you can't not take part in the sin that's going on. And if you are knit together with Christ, you're trying to avoid that and grow to become more like him. But he assumes that in being a believer, you are going to have relationships, strong relationships, relationships close enough where people are asking you over for dinner. And some of those are going to be tricky. We must avoid this temptation of trying to just section off our lives and fill our calendars with Christian stuff and never meeting a non-believer. Now, is corporate worship on Sundays important? Yeah, I think it's really important. I don't think I can go through my week without gathering with you people to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. I need to stop. I mean, I, I, to be frank with you, I'm not like going to sit in my office and sing by myself that often. I'm just not that kind of guy, right? I, but I need to gather and sing with you guys. 
I need to gather and not just pray by myself, but pray together. I need uh, my city group. Uh, I need them to, to have close friendships where I can be honest about where it's hard to be a believer, about the people that I'm praying for, that they would meet Jesus. I want those Christian relationships, but what I don't want is for those to be the only part of my schedule so that I never meet my neighbor I never reach out to anybody at the co-working space that I work at during the week. I never put myself out there and go to be in a place where I'm intentionally going to try and meet somebody else and make a relationship that's not just with a believer. Paul assumes they will have these relationships, and he also assumes that those relationships will make their life tricky. And if you've been a believer for any length of time and you have relationships with non-believers, you know that that will be tricky. There will be hard conversations. There will be hard moments where, where you're going to say, hey, the things, that I, the things that I can do and the things that I can take part in are, are just different sometimes. But we're not to avoid this because of fear of either the trickiness or fear of being exposed to or close to sin. Pick it up in 28. <coughs> Paul says there is a circumstance, though, where these dinners become complicated. It says, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So Paul here says, there are limitations. Because there are limitations to the way in which you can engage in these non-believing relationships. There are limitations to the places you can go. So he says, yes, can you go have dinner? Can you go eat with your friends? Even though you might not know where that food is coming from. And maybe it was sacrificed to an idol at another point. Sure, food is food. He says, but if you go there, and he's specifically speaking in to these ceremonies of idol worship in the temples that the Corinthians wanted to go to. He says, if you're there and you know exactly what's going on, and you take part in it, and in taking part in it, you encourage them that that's an okay way to relate to their spirituality. If you encourage them that, yeah, you know, you can be a believer and do this so too, he says, if you do that, well, really what he says is you're being selfish. He says, look, you're not being selfish because you're not allowed to eat that food. He says, look, this is an issue of conscience. Like, this is an issue of conscience, but not of your conscience, of theirs. It says, someone else's proclivity to sin, someone else being caught in this form of idol worship, that's not going to change the way that you relate to this meat, this food. He says, you can still eat it in your home, knowing that you're buying just discounted meat because it's a couple days old from the temple. He says, that's okay. He says, but if you ate it there, the issue of conscience is that you are confirming for them that this is a right and good way to interact with God. And that's selfish. Either because you want to avoid the confrontation of saying what you believe. Because you just want to be there and feel like everybody else. Because you're sick of being identified as the one who is closed-minded and, and thinks things that are just ridiculous. Now Paul brings these limitations into the Corinthians after reminding them of their freedom. After reminding them that they need to keep interacting with non-believers. He reminds them of these things because this is just a reality in the Christian life. That as a believer, there are going to be limits to the way that you can participate in the behaviors of the world around you. Listen, I, I struggle all week with this, this even as an example, but, but I think this is, this is for me. 
Um, so I work at a co-working space throughout the week. Um, I've been there for six, seven months now. I've developed really close relationships in this space. And so in this space, um, there are people, there are friends, there are really co-workers to me uh, that are like members of the LBGTQ community. And, and we're friends and we're close. And I care about them. I really do. They're important. And some of them will call themselves believers. Others don't know anything of God. The way that I relate to them on those issues is different because of my convictions from the Bible. That there are times in which I'm going to say, hey, I, I can't take part in this. Like, to be honest, it would be easier, like, when Pride Month comes around to just say, yeah, I'm going to fully participate in that. And I'm going to know in my mind what I mean by that, that, like, uh, even though I can believe um, in, in, a, in a biblical definition of marriage, that doesn't mean that I think we should lord over and restrict or make this sin uh, a sin that's more grave than other sins when all of us participate in sins. And so I'm going to participate in this, but, but what I really mean is I still believe in the Bible, um, but I'm going to cover up the parts of that that are hard to interact in and to be cool with them. That's what I want to do. I want to just say, hey, I'm going I'm to slide this under. I'm going to hide it because, because it's going to affect this relationship and it's going to be hard. But I think for me, if I did that, I'd violate what I know is true. And not only would I, would I step away from what I think the Bible has told me is true, I'd tell them, hey, this is what the Bible thinks too. Because they know I'm a believer. They know I'm a pastor. And so the way that I interact with them is part of my witness to them about Jesus. And so that cuts both ways. That cuts in the way that I show them love and care and compassion. And the way that I speak to them about issues on which the Bible informs our lives differently than the way that they think. It affects whether or not I, I, I'm prideful in that or I'm humble and teachable and honest and kind. And it also affects and limits the way in which I can interact in certain circumstances. And that's one of the hardest parts of being a believer right now. Is that whether it's that issue or a multitude of other issues, there are going to be places that you come to where the Word of God is going to give you a clear instruction and you're going to think, I don't want anyone else to know I believe that. Because a lie has been told to us. And that lie is that in any way that we interfere with anyone else pursuing what they see as good for themselves, that we're hurting them that we're transgressing. And what's hard is that that truth in our culture, that mantra of, of love what you love, that mantra of be true to yourself, that mantra of find that thing within you because that's the most important thing in the world, that mantra is absolutely contrary to what Scripture instructs us. The issue is not homosexuality or anything like that. The issue is not idol worship and meat. The issue is not marriage and divorce. The issue is not sex, when you can, what you can, what it is. None of those are the issues. Paul says, here's what the issue, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
Paul says the controlling issue, the controlling issue is who your life is for and what your life is about. He starts it off with that sentence in 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And then here he tells us what he's really saying there. Because he's saying your heart is tuned to be selfish. It is no surprise that the mantra of our culture is that we should just let people do as they do. It is no surprise that the mantra of our culture is that that finding your true self and whatever makes you tick is the most important thing. Because that was the mantra of the Corinthians. Look back. Every culture arrives at this place where they decide that the most important truth is all things are lawful. I can do whatever I want. Don't stand in my way. What really matters is how smart and intellectual and, and, and with it I am. Every culture comes to this place and Paul says, that's just not the truth. A culture where we all believe that we're the most important thing, where really we all believe that we're God. A culture where we create an entire form of media centered around us as the star. Where you're in your day and you're like, oh, this would make a good story, right? Just a second. And you're like, I, I, I literally have done this. This is not just, I'll be like, hey kids, be quiet. Daddy's trying to make a story for his Instagram. People need this. You can speak, but only on cue, where you pop in around the corner and go, funny daddy, or something stupid, right? We've curated a culture that says, it's all about you. And other people like it. They like that it's about you. But in reality, they just like that it's all about them, too. That their vote matters, their like matters, their heart matters. Other people view their content, validate them, tricks our brains, addicts us to the dopamine. Paul says, that's not how you were made, church. You weren't made to pursue yourself. He says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This passage is a great gift, and it's a weighty command. It's a gift that in Christ you have the ability to glorify God. Because God looks at you and he doesn't see the way that you're trying to perform. He doesn't see that task that you're trying to complete. He doesn't see that failure that you had yesterday. He doesn't even see your sin anymore. That God looks at you and he sees Christ. And so you have been given the ability to glorify God in the way that you think and speak and the things that you do. That's an amazing gift. Previous, before you believed in Christ, or if you have not trusted in Christ yet, you were an enemy of God. Every part of you was wired for your selfishness, and still most of you probably is, because this is a progressive thing that's happening to you. It's a great gift that you even can glorify God, and the greater gift in that is that God has wired you to delight in magnifying who he is. God has made you to delight in magnifying his name in everything that you do. Every breath, every step, every Chick-fil-A nugget is an opportunity. And it's funny and it's ridiculous, but it's an amazing truth. That, That you don't have to change your job. You don't have to change your major. Probably don't even have to change your hobbies. All you gotta do is change your perspective. Like, how different would your day be 
if every time you went on a run, if every time you ate a meal, every time you talked to your friends, every time you interacted with your kids, your spouse, your boyfriend, whatever, if every time you did those things, at the same time you delighted in the way that God has given you a gift in that thing. And even beyond that, not just in the fact that he's given that gift, but even that he just is who he is. What would it look like if you started to see every good form of pleasure in this world as an indication from God of who he is and the great love that he's lavished on you? What if you took a toll of your day? How would your perspective change? Would that change how down you feel? Would that shift whether or not it's easier to get out of bed in the morning? Now, I'm not promoting a quick fix like this is going to instantly cure depression or anxiety or anything of that regard. But I am telling you that that will change your life. That if you realize that the creator of the universe made the universe, made you, wired you, so that in delighting in him, you would be truly happy. And that because he knew that you would have such a hard time with that, that because of sin, you were wired in a different way, that he sent Jesus literally to rewire you so that you could be happy. And not just happy, joy. A settled contentment even when things are wrong. How would that change your life? This is, this is a great gift. But it's also a weighty command. And it's a weighty command because Paul is pushing you here that your life is about more than just you. That our lives is about more than just us as a church. That our lives are about more than our pleasure or our social status. That our lives have a purpose. That purpose is to glorify God. In that glorifying God, that purpose is to ask the question of in this Am I harming someone else? That in my witness on this thing, that in people viewing me doing this thing, am I drawing them closer to God or am I pushing them away? And so as we close this out today, I just want to, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us in the season that we're in as a church. I want to pray uh, for, for all of us in the seasons that we're in in our lives, for the interactions that we have um, with our families, friends, for those people that you will meet this week and that you have this opportunity. You can either meet them and just walk away, or you can meet them. Like that person who hands you your food, that person who, who checks you out at the store, that person uh, who you hang out with or just meet for the first time, or you ask a simple question to. I want to pray for us in those interactions. And I want to pray also for us when, when it's hard. When we feel this rub against what culture wants and what we have to offer. And I want to pray that we wouldn't believe this lie. That we wouldn't believe this lie. The, the, the ultimate goal of man is to seek his own pleasure. But we believe that what God says that the chief goal of man is to glorify God and to delight in that. And that if we do that, it'll, it'll change the whole world. Let's pray. <coughs> God, no one can change the heart of man but you. God, no one can make me want something different but you. And so God, our simple prayer is this, that you would change us. 
God, that in your word we would believe your truth, that we can be truly filled with joy when we glorify you in all that we do. And that, God, we would let that truth speak into our lives even where it's difficult. That, God, we wouldn't use this truth uh, to live in fear of whether or not we may sin by doing something trivial. God, that we wouldn't use this truth to say, no, I'm going to section myself off from culture and not make any more relationships. God, that we wouldn't use this truth of your love and approval for us to run into sinful situations and just say it doesn't matter. I'm just going to seek out myself. But instead, we would use this truth as a good gift from you. That in your love for us, you have wired us so that we can have joy. You have wired us so that we can make it through the hard day. And you've chosen to do that by revealing yourself to us in Jesus. By buying us back as children of God. And by changing our hearts to worship you instead of ourselves. God help us because it's hard. God, I pray that in this next season for our church that you give us fruit in this. That God, you would testify to the truth of scripture in us seeing people who don't know Jesus come to meet Jesus for the first time. God, that they would step out of the pain and strife of trying to find joy and coming up dry and take a breath of the living water that can satisfy. God, I pray for us in those relationships where we're going to have hard moments. God, I pray for those relationships in this church where we're going to disagree and struggle with each other. God, above all else, I ask that you would help us to have lives that are focused in every minute moment as well as the biggest moments of our lives on glorifying you, the one true God who has made a way for us to enter into your family. God, we love you. We worship you. We pray this in your name. Amen.